Welcome to the Braveyard. Today's guest is Australian football legend and LGBTQ2 advocate, Danielle Laidley. Danielle was outed by Australian Victoria Police and became headlines worldwide in the most vulnerable moment of her life. She just released her first documentary, Two Tribes, and recently wrote her first book, Don't Look Away. Please help me welcome the talented and absolutely inspirational Danielle Laidley. Hi, Danny. How are you? Good, thank you. Good. So I'm really, really grateful that you're coming on because I think your story in particular for me is just such a story of resilience. And I think that trans people are are often under so many battles where we have to be resilient. But yours was just to a complete extreme with everything that you've gone through. But I want to start, you just recently had a documentary come out that I was so pleased to be able to watch. And it's absolutely beautiful. How was the process of having cameras and filming your life now that you're living authentically as yourself? Yeah, it was it was about two years of filming. So we started ways back in July 2021. And at first it was quite daunting to have cameras everywhere and always having a mic on and uh, things like that. I think we shot something like 350 hours of footage. Yeah. So it was, it, it, it was long at times it was arduous and at, at times it was quite raw, you know, cause I was still going through quite a bit of uh, trauma when we very first started. So from, you know, in the documentary or from the start, it's, it is very raw. It's very, very honest. So there was a whole range of emotions, you know, from excited to a bit overwhelming at, at, at stages. And then as we got, as we finished, uh, filming and we went into the editing phase, it then became quite scary because we're handing this piece of work over to, to the world to, to see. Once we got the final product and we watched a few different washes of the documentary, we're really happy with, with what we put out there. Awesome. How has the, uh, the documentary been received so far for you? Oh, it's been amazing. It, it really has, you know, people stop us in the streets, the amount of messages we have through either email or text or, uh, through social media has been quite overwhelming and and I'm so glad that we, we took the time to tell my story because it's, it's obviously helped myself being quite cathartic and therapeutic, but it's also helped people who may have gender dysphoria, may have uh, mental health issues, may have had a disease of addiction. So there's so many different things to take out of that. So the response has been been great, I have to say. Good. Well, I'm really glad because it's such a beautiful documentary and it's a really important story to tell. And I saw something that kind of 
piqued my interest a little bit that I wanted to ask you about because after watching your documentary at home, I decided to watch David Beckham's documentary as well. There's a conversation that happens in Beckham's documentary where they talk about the addiction to the adrenaline from the crowd while you're playing sports. And then it yeah. kind of got me thinking, you know, when you left sports, was that something that you related to that maybe played into the drug use or the chase for the adrenaline or the chase for a high afterwards? Great question. Absolutely. My uh, disease of addiction in my family goes back many generations on, on the male side, right through to my great, great, great grandfather, all alcoholics, not basically self um, committed suicide or, you know, took, took their own, own lives. And I was very scared of that. But the disease of addiction got me through my football from 16 or 17 years of age. And you're exactly right with the adrenaline and the discipline that you get. And with, with myself, you know, when my gender dysphoria was, was roaring, it was easy to put myself wholeheartedly into my football, my playing career, and then my, my coaching career. And then that sort of took over. And then once I, once I end up leaving the ASL after 35 years, that was no longer there. And so when my gender dysphoria was roaring and little Danielle was playing up and wanting attention, you know, there was nothing to uh, stick my, my head into, if you like, mind, body, and soul. So it was at that point, you know, I. I started to gamble, which I hadn't gambled in my whole life and then got bored of that and then started to consume way too much alcohol and then I didn't like hangovers. And then at 48 years of age, you know, I got introduced to cocaine and, you know, that all those mechanisms that you talk about was exactly what David Beckham was talking about in his documentary where you... You, you need that adrenaline. You need that being part of that team. You need to be, it gives you so much discipline. And then that went all out the window pretty much. And I, I really struggled through to, from about 2015, 16, when I did leave the ASL about dealing with my, with my gender dysphoria in ways that I, I hadn't had before. Right. And I feel like that it's like another level of feeling lost because, you know, you're not just going through your gender dysphoria and feeling lost within your body, but then you're out of the AFL and you're also feeling lost without your team and what that next step meant for you. So that's a lot to try and go through as a person and also be finding your own identity away from sports and within your own body. Yeah. And, and I think you know, with one of the strong messages out of the documentary is I withdrew from everyone at that point in time and tried to deal with it myself. And there was a lot of self-sabotage in that. And the biggest thing I, I can look back now and say that if anyone is, you know, feeling like that, whether it, as I say, whether it's any of those issues that we're talking about is to talk to someone and reach out and get some professional help, get some medical intervention, you know, cause at that stage, I still hadn't spoken to 
anyone officially about my gender dysphoria. And then it wasn't until, you know, I, I, I went through, you know, drinking and gambling and drugging that my life got so bad. It just, uh, one day when I was seeing my counselor, it just came out about the gender dysphoria and then was like, oh my God, I've just told someone, what am I going to do uh, now? And they were so understanding and I'll, I'll be forever grateful for that because from there it happened very quickly uh, to finally go and sort some medical help and finally be diagnosed because obviously, you know, I, I had a fair idea my, my whole life, but you know, you you're still unsure what this thing is and the shame and the embarrassment that comes along with it, particularly being in the AFL industry where, you know, no one had ever uh, firstly come out as transgender or, or gay for that, for that fact. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, the fear of what my colleagues, people I played with, people I coached, what they would think of me was just so very overwhelming and how was it coming out and seeing because you've seen the documentary a bit about how the afl has come back into your life in a very unexpected way from what you initially thought what was it like realizing that everything you were scared of ended up actually being the people that were the first to come to your aid yeah and that 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 part of it I would never, I probably would never have thought about that because the, just the initial, the, the fear of, of that was just my first and uh, foremost thought. And then with the way it came out, you know, they very quickly sort of gathered the troops, so to speak, and rallied around me firstly to make sure if I was okay and my family was okay. And then they played a huge role in you know, rebuilding, you know, my, my person and my authentic self and being so wonderfully accepting of, of that. And, you know, I'll be for forever grateful because not, not everyone has that. So I've been very lucky to have that, uh, greater family, if you like, wrap their arms around me and make sure I'm okay, you know, and yeah, just, just put a lot of positivity around, around my life. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to touch into like everything about the story. You know, if you don't know exactly everything that's happened, listeners, please go and, and watch Danielle's documentary on stand. But when you talk about the way that everything came out, there's a few things that I just wanted to touch on very briefly. One is kind of a tough question for me to ask, but because there is this dangerous narrative being pushed majority by, you know, right-wing extremists about trans women being predators and then how your story came out, do you feel like you contributed in some way to the negativity of that narrative? And if you do, what do you feel like you can do now moving forward to try and correct that? You know, all, all, all I can say is, you know, the way, the way it happened, it was an ex-partner, um, uh, we had a property, uh, together. She was, uh, two timing me, so to speak, which I didn't know about. And I was trying to get her out of my property and she wouldn't do that. It made it very difficult. And, you know, she, she went to the police 
and it was, you know, been a bit of a smarty pants and she said, oh, I've gone to the police and, and didn't uh, do anything. And then I said, well, it's out of your hands now. They can do with what they wish. Well, then about five hours later, she rang me back crying. I didn't mean this to happen. I didn't mean this to happen. And yeah, sort of, it, 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 it just blew out from, uh, from there. Yeah, you know, I, I, I only can take responsibility for my 50% of the race chip, uh, which I have done through, you know, through, you know, uh, talking it through with my, my family and my friends and the law. And I'm very happy with, with that, how that, that sits. And this is, this is the first time I've actually ever spoken about this narrative about what happened. I've had to take all the slurs and innuendos of being a domestic violence perpetrator, you know, and that, and that really hurts. Um, but you know, and I know, I know it's not me, but you know, people will think and read what was reported initially. And that's, that, that's a little bit why we, we wrote the book and we did the, uh, the documentary to take back the narrative and control the narrative much, much in a much more uh, positive and truthful and truthful way. And I think I'm happy with that since, and it'll depend again on people, you know, what they do. But I, I certainly know, Courtney, I, I look at life, whether you're transgender, whether you're male, whether you're female, you're either a good person or you're not a good person. And I know uh, from my heart of hearts that I'm a good person. I want to be loved. I want to love. And, you know, I, I think that's, that, that's the case with, you know, with, with human beings. So people can judge me with, you know, how they, they see me now, because I know at that point in time, and it's not, it's not an excuse and it was a reason. Yes, I was drug affected and yes, I did make phone calls and I did send texts and I can say quite funnily enough now that I got just as many texts back the other way, probably even more, which, you know, I didn't, I didn't go to the police. I was just trying to sort it out between ourselves. But so I would like I, to I, pause here for one sec, because that I think is the important part of this narrative. First of all, just thank you so much for, for having this conversation with me for the first time, because this is so important and it's so brave of you and i think that there's a lot of respect here that's due that hasn't been paid because when the story came out and when i first heard it without being your friend and knowing who you were they very much made it look like this you know person that was in a major sports league had been stalking somebody and is a predator and is trans and they were outing somebody and then labeling them again a trans woman as a predator immediately. We've never mm. talked about the fact that the messages were responded to. This was a partner. It made it seem like this was somebody that maybe didn't even know you that was just constantly getting this. And so we talk about this narrative. And that's why I asked, you know, if you think that this contributed negatively to that out of your control, because this was again, something that was completely untruthful and then was damaging to you because you were outed because of it. But there wasn't ever the conversation that those messages were being responded to. This was a partner. This was more of, you know, a dis domestic dispute over messaging than it was somebody, you know, quote unquote, stalking somebody else. And none of that has been gotten 
any attention. And I'm yeah. really, really grateful that we were able to address that on here because I think that speaks volumes to what happens to trans women in the media. Yeah, it was, you know, first of all, you know, uh, the the stalking and then the, then what happened with the, you know, with the police that the narrative was quite easy. Oh, let's just the trans part. Let's pick the stalking part and let's tell a story about, about this. And it was, it was so, so wrong in regard to, you know, the person that, that I am. And it's now taken me, you know, over three years to rebuild, uh, my, my person and, and myself. And as I say, this is the first time that I've spoken as deeply, you know, with the issues that happened back then as I have. And I'm extremely grateful for it because. I think that this side of the story is so important because of the narrative that was created around it that was out of your control. But you did go back and in the documentary, I believe it mentions that you actually went back to work with Victoria Police on some training documents. And I I feel like if that isn't a story of bravery and overcoming just absolute mistrust and mistreat from an organization that has wronged you and putting your best foot forward and going above and beyond to now better that program. I think that that's just one of the most beautiful mentions in the story of who you are as a person, because there's not a lot of people that are going to go up to somebody that single-handedly almost, you know, destroyed their life and who they were as a person at a period of time, and then have that person go out and actually help the organization that did it. What was that experience for you? Was it their healing in that process of working with them again? Uh, yes, there was, there was a little bit of healing and, and I suppose how it came around. And because, you know, I've never, I've only just been welcomed and supported into the trans community because I was too scared to be a, be a part of it, so to speak. And then when all this sort of happened, I, what I did was I started to read and research the relationship, uh, particularly in Australia, but also around the world. I was able to find quite a few reports of the relationships between police force and the transgender community. And the gap was wide and widening by the minute. And I thought, I can perhaps do something about this. So then worked with Victoria Police in putting together some uh, training aids, if you like, and now they're in now they're in use for all new police officers who come into the to, into that space, which I think is a wonderful thing. A hundred percent, and I think that that is such a testament to who you are to be able to go back in to the people that did so wrong to you when. And this is kind of my last question on this topic, but when you called the police, because also another misconception was that the police were called on you, you were arrested, you actually called the police on yourself. Did you realize in that moment that you were presenting female and that that was going to lead to somebody possibly recognizing you? I, I, you know, at that time, I was living as myself, just quite privately. The only place that I wasn't was in front of my children at the time or at my place of work. And so I was just being me. So I didn't give it another thought if, if that makes, that makes sense. And I had been, 
and I had been diagnosed at this stage. So for me, it was, this is me, but it just got to the point where it was, you know, I was on, a, on this toxic dance floor and I didn't know how to get off. I wouldn't reach out to any, anyone and, you know, having found out about my gender dysphoria and then in, in, in that sort of 12 months period where the drug use went from zero to 100 very quickly, you know, all of a sudden I had two issues that I didn't know how to deal with. And, and then dealing with this property, uh, an ex-partner dispute, I, I, I made a decision to go to the property and ring the police and tell them that I was breaking the intervention order. You better come and get me. Well, that was a pretty bad mistake. I have to say, but you know, from, from there, once I was arrested and taken to the police station, again, a trans person who is at the most vulnerable at that stage, I can say me mentally un unstable and needed some care and welfare that wasn't forthcoming at that period of time. So that's why I sort of rung the police to try and somehow get off this toxic dance floor. Did I ever think that it would explode like it did publicly? No, I didn't. I think, do you just want to quickly touch uh, on a word that is used just because of how it's being used right now in media? When you say diagnosed, just for clarification for any listeners, this is being diagnosed with gender dysphoria. You know, I think there's a, also a toxic narrative going around that trans people are mentally unhealthy or, you know, being trans is some sort of an illness that needs to be diagnosed or sick. It's not we're talking about gender dysphoria, which is symptoms that a trans person can go through where you're completely disassociating with your body. And that can be diagnosed by a doctor to help provide clarity for a trans individual uh, to know what the right steps are for them through their transition. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, the, the, the narrative around that is, you know, I, I can honestly sit sit here today and say, this, this is not, this is not a choice. This, my, my, my choice was to live and be me rather than, than not, than not be here. You, you wouldn't go what we go through, um, um, as a fetish or there's, there's much easier things to do if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, to do that. And I, I, I find it, I really struggle with people that, you know, say that it's not a medical condition, you know, you're sick, you're this, you're that, you're a predator. Like I, I, I do really, really struggle with that. We, we don't, we don't do this to get attention. Let me tell you. <laughs> mm -hmm. If anything, it's the opposite. I mean, most trans people are quiet and hiding and there's so many trans people in day-to-day -day that are stealth that people have no idea are trans. It's funny, when I came out, one of my mom's really, really good friends that she had worked with for a long time ended up messaging my mom and uh, openly shared that they were trans after I had come out. And we had mm. absolutely no fucking idea that this individual mm. was trans. They had been, a, you know, a big part of our lives for quite a while. It meant so much to me to hear them share that with me openly. And now you see, uh, you know, 
trans individuals that have had successful careers in Hollywood, in modeling, in, you know, they're all coming out after the fact because they said, you know, I couldn't have come out then. I, you know, wasn't yeah. safe. It's still not really safe now, but I think it's important for people to know that I am trans and I was there and I was doing all these things and we've always been here taking up space, whether you know it or not. Yeah. But it's not a decision for anybody that feels that they're in the wrong body to try to make themselves feel right and be able to show up in the world authentically as themselves. Why would you go up against adversity and the amount of discrimination that trans people get on a day to day for fun? Like it's not, there is no choice here. It's just, you're doing it to survive. And now you're picking a life that sometimes comes with, you know, a lot of other obstacles but it's better to face the other obstacles as yourself and in a whole situation, you know, speaking spiritually, being able to feel whole and present and within your body. That gave me the courage to go up against adversity because that was more important than yeah. not wanting to be here. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I probably, I've seen probably two sides of the coin now where as a person uh, with the talent in um, a national sport, you know, in a, in a major league here in Australia, that regardless of if you're a good, bad or indifferent person, you're put on a pedestal because you have a talent in one sport. And I I've seen that first, firsthand for, for many, many years, but now I also see uh, being a transgender woman that, you know, no longer am I put up on that. A pedestal. I'm a part of this at times just described as sick weirdos, um, you know, minority group of people. And I think, wow, you know, where it, that's why I said before, you're either a good, bad or indifferent person, regardless of, of who, who you are. And I don't think that that narrative is, is too kind to, to trans people. And I think by telling my story and doing the work that I do is about educating people and, and getting them to understand a little bit more. Because what I've found is by meeting people and talking to people, once they have a little bit of an understanding, they go, I actually get that. I, I understand, you know, and then that person goes and tells another person who tells another person who tells another person. So it is, the education of it is a slow burn. Cause I think sometimes as a human race, when things change, if we don't know about them, they will block them and have a, a negative, a negative take on mm. whatever the subject uh, might, might be. And, you know, it's, it, in, in, in our case, it's being transgender. So for us to speak openly and honestly about it, uh, I think is a great thing. And I think the education comes down to human connection because so much of the hate that I get online, you know, it's, it really just comes down to people that are keyboard warriors. But 99% of the time when you sit down and have a conversation with somebody, that has a legitimate point that they want addressed that is based out of fear or, you know, lack of education or whatever it is, being able to sit down at a table and talk about it, even if you don't walk away sharing the same point of view on the subject, but having a, a better 
educated understanding of it allows us as human beings to be more compassionate for each other. And I agree, it starts with, you know, the small conversations with one person who tells another person who tells another person, and also with having representation like yourself. I I think that, you know, there's more representation right now uh, in the trans community of, you know, younger, early in transition, or or transitioned early on, kind of, I want to say like 20s to maybe 35 is where like a lot of the representation are those are people in social media, you know, people with their careers in Hollywood that are taking off or in music that are doing well. But you see less and less of trans elders or people that are coming out later in life and their stories. And so I think especially for parents that are struggling with their kids acceptance to be able to look at you in your documentary and see you choose love and positivity and how you show up in the world as inspiration is beautiful. And I think it's so important because those stories aren't really being told right now. Mm-hmm. Do you, yeah. you touch uh, on yeah. with your family a little bit and like go into obviously what, what happened with the girls. Do you have any advice for parents out there that have transitioned and are now going through the same struggles where their children aren't as accepting or or they no longer have relationships with them because of that? Yeah, I, I, I think you know, my case being a little different, the girls didn't really know and it came out so publicly public and they're adult children themselves. So they would have gone through their own feeling of shame and embarrassment. We, we didn't get a chance to sit down and work through step by step as a family. Um, um, and because it was, it was so public and you know, what I, what I would say is, you know, we, we particularly elder trans people, we, we have known our, our whole life. It is only once, once you sit down with someone, it is very, very new to them. And hence, they need to uh, be educated, guided, supported, you know, about each step of the journey. And it, it, it takes time for them to get used of that uh, situation. So using any means of uh, support and also giving them their own space to digest and work through the issues that they, that they have. And that, and that takes time. What I've sort of come to the conclusion is it's, it's not about, it's not about me. It's not in my time as a transgender adult, you can't, as much as we want acceptance very quickly and that it takes time and realistically it's, it's on the children's time, but having said that. The adult needs to make sure that they uh, continue to work on themselves as the best person and show by actions that, you know, this is them. They're a, a still a good uh, parent and a part of society. So they can lead by, by actions that way. But it is certainly a, uh, a certain, certainly a journey. And you said that uh, in the documentary, one of the girls had asked for a copy of the book that their friend was going to read. Do you know if she's read the book? Uh, no, no, I don't know. No, not at this, not at this stage. So it's still, yes, yes. It's still, 
in its infancy, infancy, us reconstructing the relationship that we've had, you know, previously. I will say there has been some conversation, which is a step forward. And, you know, I think that also is a, is, is, is a good thing. That makes my heart so, so happy to hear. And I think that that just goes to show that having patience and understanding and, you know, kindness and empathy for everyone's situation when it comes to a transition, including the person that, that is going through the transition, having those for those closest to them is just such an important part of the process for everybody. As long as it's, again, mutually respectful and everyone's coming from a place of love, then empathy and and understanding really are those core elements that help the relationships take on their new role, whatever that is, if that makes yeah. sense, so that they can evolve into whatever the new relationship looks like for those people. One yeah. of my favorite quotes, actually, from your documentary isn't from you. It's actually from your partner, Donna. And she says, I just knew that I loved this person. I don't understand what's so hard for people to get that you can just love another human. And I almost teared up listening to that because I was like, "It, there is a narrative that trans people are unlovable and we don't find love or that we'll struggle to find love or whatever it is. And just hearing your partner be like, I don't understand what's so confusing that you can just love somebody for who they are was really beautiful because at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. And she's obviously been a massive support for you going through this process. How has that been now that your relationship has been able to kind of step out of the documentary? You have some more time of your life back and now you can kind of explore what that love is with each other. How has that been so far? It's still been particularly busy. We haven't had a holiday in two years. And so we're off to uh, Bali for Christmas and uh, New Year for about, we're going for about a month. We have a villa over there. So this will be the first time we actually just get to spend a good chunk of about three, three and a half weeks with each other and doing whatever we want to do. That might mean sitting by the poolside. It might mean going for walks. It might mean going shopping. So we're really looking, we're really looking forward to that. Who enjoys shopping our... more, you or Donna? Oh, we're both pretty good at it. Donna is actually very good at finding stuff for, for herself. She's a great shopper, but also for, for me, I have to say she has a large influence on my uh, fashions. And I, I suppose that's why we, we do enjoy doing that together. Mm-hmm. And we always look beautiful. So she's doing something right. Probably not this morning, just getting out of bed uh, only 10 minutes before we, we got here and putting on a little bit of powder and getting a cup of tea. And You look wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. So when it uh, comes to you, and this is kind of just a bit of an off-topic question, but I was just genuinely really curious because the only other person that you can kind of think about in media that's gone through somewhat of a similar thing with a very public transition is Caitlyn Jenner, who is also an athlete and then had a very public transition. I'm curious to know your take on Caitlyn. I think that there's so many sides to 
who Caitlin is as a person and and what they contribute, you know, positively and negatively. But what's your opinion on Caitlin coming from a sports background, publicly transitioning and knowing what some of that experience is like? Yeah, probably, yes, the, the, the sporting background, you know, being a Olympian, but, you know, I, I suppose it's more from the Kardashian programs and, you know, being in that, it was quite, it was very public and, you know, it, it all happened so very, it looked like it happened so very, very quickly. What I was sort of interested in was assimilation into the trans community and, um, um, you know, I, I read a, read the book, watched, I think it was untold documentary and, you know, in the documentary, it was mainly the sport and then coming, coming through into being, being a self, but not the way that I have done it. I politely <laughs> answering I'm, this question. I'm a quite an introverted person and, you know, the work that I'll do supporting the transgender community is subtly and not getting on my, on my soapbox or being the head of a protest or, or anything like that. I think, and, but that's for me. Um, um, I mean, I don't think she's done that either though. I, I mean, I know that she's a figurehead in Fox News, but I don't necessarily know if it's advocating for trans people. Again, like I'm not super up to date on on Caitlyn, and I know that Caitlyn had a documentary style show that or reality style show that came out that I thought was not contributing to conversations in a very constructive manner, but there was so much representation on the show. It was almost like a double-edged sword for me where I'm like, I feel like this is, you know, contributing to a really toxic narrative in one form, but on the other form, you have other trans women that are are being part of this debate and are there's representation of all of these beautiful trans women sitting at a table. And so then you kind of have to think as a trans person, like when a trans person isn't necessarily supporting the community, but they're bringing so much exposure to important conversation topics <laughs> it's it's such a double-edged sword where you don't really know and she was almost outed as well you know <laughs> she came out later in life she was a sports player she was almost outed but the, yep. you see the way that you handle yourself and how you show up for the community the way you handle conversations and topics and take responsibility I feel like I don't really see the same from her where you know I I would hope that somebody transitioning at that point in their life was so excited to be themselves and then support, you know, anyone coming through the door behind them and hold that open. Yeah. That's something that I think that you're doing, which I, I love and respect. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good point that you make there. I, I remember early doors. It might have been her first interview with a very famous news reporter in the States. Um, um, and her name escapes me right now, but any time she's, and this was in the first few years, she would go back and speak to this lady. Oh, I forget, I forget her name. And I, in the early days, and I thought, 
that she was really is it Diane Sawyer when she did yeah. Diane Sawyer? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. And I I really like the narrative of being transgender and gender dysphoria and explaining the whole the whole thing. And I thought, you know, for younger transgender uh, women, that's the narrative they're looking for. That's what they're, that's what the education, that is the support, that is the, oh, that's me moment. Um, and, and I got those moments through watching those early narratives. After that, well, you know, you touched on it a fair bit, you know, yeah. But I think, I think more of that from any mature transgender woman, and, and I keep it quite simply, simple like this, that whatever I say, whatever I do is being me and being authentic to self. But what I, in the, in, in the same breath, I'm breaking down barriers for, uh, yes, the current generation, but the, the, the next generation is coming through and the following generation so that they can live life with less barriers than what we have or, mm -hmm. and slowly that that's it. That's quite simply how I, how I look at it. And I, I honestly, I couldn't agree more. I think that what you do is beautiful. I think the way that you tell your story is beautiful. I'm so grateful that you have allowed us to elaborate on some of those situations that you went through in the past today and the narrative that was created around it, because I think that there's such a genuine just miscare of information in the media, especially when it comes to trans women and you uh, showing up and, and correcting that and using your voice to explain everything that happened. And I also respect how you didn't do it up until now because you were respecting everything that was happening in the court. You were taking responsibility. You really just owned it and, you know, took it on the chin for lack of better expression mm -hmm. uh, to, in order to be respectful to all the parties that were involved there and are now getting the opportunity to talk a little bit more. And I think that you are just such a beautiful person. I think your story is so resilient and inspirational for, for all trans people, but specifically for trans people that are maybe still struggling a little bit later in life. You're such a role model of, you know, and I, I don't mean this in a rude way, but basically what happened to you is almost the worst possible way that you could have to go through something like that. <laughs> and uh, you came out of it stronger and and you used it as as complete and utter inspiration to define yourself in a new way and and utilize all of that to transform into the person that you are today overcome you know all of these fears and the discrimination and the obstacles and you are just a tremendous person for the way that you show up in the world and i'm so grateful to have you on here so thank you so much Thank you, Courtney. It's been uh, wonderful to chat to you. You're doing such a um, great job yourself for our community, and it's been a privilege. Oh, I consider it one as well. And we're definitely going to keep in contact. I'm sure there's a ton of other conversations that we can have about other things, but thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you.
All right, friends, that wraps up today's episode of The Braveyard. I want to give a massive, massive thank you to Danielle Laidley for coming on and sharing this story. She has never shared her experience from her perspective and her point of view of everything that was such uh, a massive story and massive headlines. I think that the way that she's carried herself and the way that she's handled her situation is such an inspiration for everybody and the way that she's bounced back in her life is hopefully something that not only trans people can take away from but anyone that's going through struggles in their life uh you know to choose their happiness to use their voice for good and to continue working on themselves to be the best person that they can possibly be to show up in the world so massive massive thank you to danielle next week we have another amazing guest Alicia Silberg, who is the profound writer of the book Unemployable and just an all-out inspiration as well. I can't wait to get into the conversation. We go into a ton of topics from work and business and tech all the way down to her experience writing the book and, and growing up in South Africa. This is definitely a conversation that you don't want to miss. But for now, I'm Courtney Lee. And we'll see you next time at the Braveyard. Yard.